Why are you here? Please, you. Are you real? As real as you wish. Oh, no. No, that's not any answer. I've never met you before. I never even imagined you. Perhaps they made me out of dreams you've forgotten. What, and dressed you in the same metal fabric they wear? Oh, I have to wear something, don't I? Space. The Final Frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Give Me That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. This is your host, Siskoid, welcoming you to Gimme That Star Trek, a proud new show on the Fire and Water Network, which comes out 50 years almost to the day when Star Trek made its broadcast debut on September 8th, 1966, and which will act as a companion show to Give Me Those Star Wars on the same network where Ryan Daly is doing amazing work on the franchise that's on the other side of fandom with some seven films and change as pure canon. Ryan and his co-hosts have been able to find an unusually diverse number of topics for his show, so my guests and I should have no trouble doing the same as well, with well over 700 canonical installments of Star Trek across six shows, soon seven, and more than a dozen films, not counting hundreds of novels and comics and more. It is Star Trek's birthday, but we're really going back some 52 years to the production of Trek's first pilot titled The Cage and asking what Trek would be like today if a second pilot hadn't been ordered and the show would have proceeded with Christopher Pike in the captain's chair. Who are we asking? Why, Gene Hendricks from, among other things, the Hammer Strikes podcast. How are you, Gene? I'm doing great, Cisco. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor because I'm not used to, usually I appear on other people's shows, but it's very rare that I will get a, a guest from the larger podcasting universe to come in on one of my projects. Well, I'm happy to be the the first test subject, as it were. <laughs> and I'll ask the same question of everyone, really, to start with, what got you into Star Trek? What, what does it mean to you? Why would you accept this invitation? Well, Star Trek is the one thing that kick-started what I, I refer to as my geek gene. And I saw it at a very early age. We had we were one of the early adopters of VCRs. And we had an old, clunky, top-loading VCR. And one of the VHS tapes we had was Star Trek The Motion Picture. And that was my first exposure to Star Trek, the crew, the Enterprise, this whole idea of science fiction set in Earth's future. Because obviously there was Star Wars, but that was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And this was the first time I got to see humanity in the future all working together towards a common goal, and it it just grabbed me and pulled me in, and then I started watching the original series on its 
rebroadcast and the animated series, which I just couldn't get enough of, and the other movies as, as they were coming out. And it, it just, it grabbed me and held me, and then I went into all the other kinds of science fiction out there. But th- this Star Trek was the gateway drug, if you will. I think I watched the motion picture very, very late, because the first movie I saw was... The Wrath of Khan, right around the time when I started going to the movies uh, by myself. Ah, okay. I, I was like 12 or, you know, 11 or 12, and, and The Wrath of Khan was in that first year, which was like a, an excellent year for, for science fiction movies, uh, which I loved. But I'd seen, of course, I'd seen the original series on TV. I watched it in French. I watched it in English. And so, and it was always in syndication on one channel or other, uh, obviously. But the motion picture, I missed. I was too young when it came out. Nobody brought me to see it. And I think I read the novelization way before I ever saw the film. It seems an odd gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say it's a bad film, but it seems like an odd one to really, like, to open up that world for you. Well, you have to remember, I was, when I was a kid, my parents, let me preface this, by saying my mother remembers watching The Man Trap when she was a freshman in high school. First broadcast. So she was aware of Star Trek. She watched Star Trek when it first came out. So it was one of these things that it was no big deal. Oh, well, this is Star Trek. You like Star Wars, so why not try this? But my dad also loved watching the old, like, uh, King Kong and Forbidden Planet and all, you know, all these older movies. So I was used to, you know, the idea of, oh, spaceships and things like that. You know, the old Flash Gordon serials and things. Sure. And it still gets me to this day when I watch the motion picture and they're doing the fly by the Enterprise and then the travel pod turns around and you get that upswell in the Jerry Goldsmith score and you suddenly see, bang, there's the Enterprise. That was my first ever sight of the Enterprise. And it just, that beautiful vision with that music, it stuck in my head yeah. and I, I am the exact opposite of you because it wasn't until Michael Bailey sent me a copy of the novelization this year that I read the novelization I saw the movie very early on but I didn't read the novel until recently and whereas you read the novel and didn't see the movie till recently yeah actually you know what my first <laughs> my first motion picture experience was the mad magazine parody <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. I mean, that, that was my, like, my first, oh, there, there are Star Trek movies? And that's, that's when it happened for me. So there's a little survey, a very small survey that I'd like to give every guest, every show. You get to go first. So very quickly, what is your favorite show or version of Star Trek? I'm going to cheat. Go ahead. My favorite version includes the original crew. So that would cover the original series, the original six movies, and the animated series. Right. So it's, it's You're- a little on the broad side, but it's, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Oprah, right. Chekhov, Sulu. The original cast. Yep. Yes. Favorite character? I would have to say Scotty. Oh, yeah. Because Scotty is the reason I became an engineer. Oh. It, it was one of these things where I was fascinated by his ability to fix anything or cobble together stuff. It's kind of odd that I became a civil engineer, not a mechanical engineer. <laughs> But still, it, it kick-started me into that. I was always good at math and science, but here was a way to apply that. This had a real application to it. And also, when I was in sixth grade, one of my birthday presents was Mr. Scott's Guide to the Enterprise. Hmm. So I, I was reading, you know, Scotty's technical manual. 
on on my own and it just fascinated me. Yeah, you hear a lot of these stories about, you know, astronauts and scientists who grew up on Star Trek and saying that this was their inspiration, but it really does happen. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah. Because because it's a future that is bright. It it is hey, if we work towards this, we'll all be united. We'll all go out and explore space together as the human race. It's uh, aspirational. Exactly, yes. I'm a doctor, not an engineer. No, you're an engineer. And finally, what is your favorite alien species? That would have to be the Vulcans. Now, it could be the Klingons, but the Vulcans have this thing that... And it's like I said on my little bit for the Supermates 50th anniversary thing, that they have this control that is enviable. I have a very, very bad temper, and I do control it, For the most part, I am kind of like uh, Bruce Banner in this way. But when it comes out, it is the Hulk. But if I were Spock or Sarek, I'd have that ultimate control, and that wouldn't come out. So it, that's another aspirational thing. You know, the Vulcans show you, yes, you can be in control. You don't have to be completely dispassionate, as both Spock and Sarek show. They are not dispassionate. They are just in control of themselves. And the whole setup, the the triangle, the Kirk, uh, Spock, McCoy triangle, really is that in Kirk you see that balance where the emotionality of McCoy and the the logic of Spock come together in one man. They're a bit like his angel and devil on his uh, on his shoulders. He's like the integration of both qualities. So that's a lesson in there in in yes. Trek as a whole, which kind of I don't know maybe disappears when we remove any of these characters from the equation, which is which is really the topic of this first episode. Yes, uh, we're talking about the original pilot, The Cage, which did not star Kirk or McCoy. Did have Spock, but not an unemotional Spock. A very different setup. So just to, if people don't know about this, famously Star Trek had two pilots. They did a pilot with a captain called Christopher Pike. Slightly different uniforms, a whole different cast, except for Mr. Spock, who was acting very differently. The pilot is is available. It's also been turned into a, a two-parter in the normal Star Trek uh, canon as the Menagerie Parts 1 and 2, using those images as flashbacks. So it's out there. Whoever, Whatever network was uh, going to buy it said, mm, too cerebral, or, you know, they had <laughs> they had these notes. And they allowed Gene Roddenberry to do a second pilot. Instead of rejecting it or modifying it heavily, do a second pilot. And in the second pilot, they addressed all the issues, apparently. And the second pilot is where no man has gone before. It does star Kirk and Spock and the cast we know, except for McCoy, still absent. Uh, and so that was picked up and that became, that went to series. And today we're going to ask what, ha what would have happened if they liked the cage enough to keep going with Pike and keep going with that original setup. But first, let's listen to a promo for some of Gene's own stuff. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with 
and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. First, let's talk about the cage itself, our own appreciation of it. You watched it today? Yes, uh, we we actually watched both the cage and Where No Man Has Gone Before to do a compare and contrast mm. thing. And something that struck me very interesting is it's almost the same story. Whereas in the cage, you have the Enterprise being drawn to Telos Four by the mental powers of the Telosians. And they want Captain Pike to become Adam and create the, essentially a race of slaves, servants. Well, the main jailer in that mentions that, well, okay, we can't do any kind of trade or mutual understanding because your race would learn the power of our minds and then you would be doomed just like we were. Well, you have the opposite of that in Where No Man Has Gone Before, where Gary Mitchell gains all the mental powers and you're seeing how the Telosium was right. Absolute power corrupted absolutely, and Kirk had to overcome that. So what you have is, in the cage, you have the nobility of humanity overcoming this external threat, whereas in Where No Man Has Gone Before, you have human frailty on display and our struggle to overcome that within ourselves. And it's also a a more personal setup, because Mm -hmm. Gary Mitchell is Kirk's old friend and they've already got a relationship so he sees his friend become transformed uh, he loses his friend and it, it also makes it i think the the second pilot in the show as a whole is much warmer than the cage the cage is what well, they say it's cerebral but i mean the characters mm. deal with each other much more on a plot basis whereas in where no man has gone before that warmth that somehow that comes from many other characters being more than just plot devices and having like the emotions are much more restrained in the cage right but i also i look at the cage more as it's actually more of a military ship in fact if you look at either outside the transporter room or on the bridge there's always someone on guard oh yeah there, there is someone standing there guarding the door which is is kind of interesting when you consider that these are the only humans in this area of space. What are they guarding from? But you have number one, who Majel Barrett, who plays a very stoic. She plays essentially Spock. She she is that controlled, reserved, by the book character. And Captain Pike, and what's interesting about Captain Pike as opposed to Captain Kirk, is Kirk is supposed to be this young go-getter of a captain. Pike is fed up. At the beginning of the cage, he's ready to quit. He's ready to go go become a slaver rather than be in charge of a starship. He's basically another uh, Star Trek character that went through this is uh, Benjamin Sisko. Yes. That, that, you know, the, that, that trope that if you want to have a character that's, that's got some experience behind him, it's not like a rookie character, then his arc may well begin at Act 2 of his life, where he's fed up and then the pilot gives him 
new momentum, a new appreciation right. for what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, and it's I would hesitate to say more cerebral because even in where no man has gone before, you have them figuring everything out. You're correct. There is it's a much warmer feel to it. it there's because of that personal connection with Gary Mitchell, but you also have them puzzling out this thing, thinking through okay. What is the end result of this? And it seems a little more like in The Cage, everyone is more open-minded about it. Uh, Dr. Daner in Where No Man Has Gone Before is, oh, no, this is, it's a great step for humanity. There's nothing dangerous about him. Kirk is, well, he's Gary. He's, he's my friend. Spock said, no, kill him. <laughs> Spock said, Spock doesn't, doesn't want to hear it. He said, you either strand him or you kill him. But in The Cage, they're trying to think through this idea that, all right, what we are seeing is probably not real. So what do we do? And they try these different things. They try and use the ship's power on a phaser cannon, essentially, to break into the Telosian encampment. They try to beam down inside the underground city. So they're trying all these different steps, but all along the way, they're like, well, we could die doing this, you know. <laughs> but everyone is still... Hey, we got to get the captain back. We'll do what we have to do. Yeah, and they're ready to die. They, they've got the whole... Uh, number one puts a phaser on uh, on auto-destruct. You know, the Talosians are not going to get us if that's... If we have no other options, then we blow ourselves up. So, you know, they're ready to die on these missions. Both episodes are rather dark, I would agree. Yes. I would agree. I mean, the, in the cage, there's... Pike is choking out the alien at one point, and uh, it's changing shapes. I mean, it, it might have been too dark for it, but I think they missed a trick by not making the alien cast an illusion where the person becomes either Vina or uh, one of his shipmates. So, right. You know, it would have been pretty dark if they went there, but it is dark. Or, you know, the scene where Pike is um, being tortured with, like, as if he's burning. That's pushing the limit even for the for the time and as far as violence goes. It is. It is. And it's, it's also interesting how they worked it in that essentially Gene Roddenberry in The Cage was saying that the Judeo-Christian concept of hell is a fable because that's what the, the jailer says, you know, after Pike has been tortured in this flaming underground area, he said, that's just a fable that we pulled up out of your mind that you once heard as a child. And so, I mean, Roddenberry was very, I wouldn't say atheist, but he was definitely non-religious. They don't make a point of it, but you can infer that we've done away with certain things in the future. Right. Uh, but where no one has gone before is also has some darkness to it. Spock advising murder, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the open tomb. Those are images that, that also feel fairly dark. But at, oh. this, at the same time, I think that, like, Kirk has, just Kirk, has this kind of smirk and wink and smile and expressiveness across the whole series, that twinkle that makes it a little bit warmer than what we see in the cage because pike is so dour at the beginning and even at the end when there's like a couple jokes on the bridge mm. before we cast off there's no forced laughter in that one pike is really engage stop it yeah. engage yeah he he definitely shuts everything down it's like you know voices co comes in trying to give him a little bit of levity in there he says yeah you're my drone business and come on let's get out of here <laughs> yeah i really think the 
The Cage is quite a clever plot construct in that because of the illusion casting, because Pike just screwed up two weeks ago and has an event haunting him, other plans, other lives he might want to lead, which the show will show him that the life he does lead is the better one. But it gives the show the chance to show the scope of the universe. We see other planets. They're all illusions. But we see other planets. We see life on Earth. We see uh, we see aliens and alien monsters of different types. We kind of see what the, the show could do week to week. But we see mm-hmm. it all condensed into one. It's a clever way to do a pilot. Yeah, because you, you give everyone this, hey, this is your potential if you go to series. Look at all the different fun stuff we can do. And it was really well done. I mean, even even with the level of technology they had at the time, it was really the, the dissolves and everything were really good. I mean, you just look at Vina at the end when she's when they show her true form. And if you compare that to, say, Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman, right. that, those dissolves are kind of obvious. Whereas, okay, he might have moved his head a fraction of an inch. In this one, it's really, really smooth when the lines suddenly appear on her face and she gets, you know, the, the scars and across her nose and everything. It's like the transporter effect, except she wasn't actually freeze framed. So yeah. it was nice. And even when they don't do the straight dissolve, you know, that weird waviness where the background changes and then the person changes. Mm-hmm. That's very stylish, even if it's, it's not necessarily um, photo real, but it's it's got style to it. And I, you know, all the effects I, I think really really stand up. They spent a lot of money on this on this pilot, which they didn't necessarily spend on other episodes. But so it looks great. I think it looks really cool. It does. Uh, yeah. So many matte paintings. So many. You know, they really went to town with it, with the, the whole idea and trying to, to show what they could do with it. And Vina, for, for my money, Susan Oliver is still one of the most beautiful women to appear in Star Trek. Um, yeah, wh- whether she's got regular skin tone or green. Yeah, she yeah. is. Well, I like her better in the regular skin tone. I've never been... I've never really gotten the whole Orion slave girls thing. It's kind of a creepy, misogynistic idea to start with yeah, today. Especially, mm. was it the Starfleet guy in that illusion that said, well, it's, it's a weird thing about this planet. They actually like being taken advantage of. Yeah. Holy misogynist, Batman. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of old-fashioned uh, sexism in the show, which there was in the original series as a whole. But, you know, the, the idea that that uh, the yeoman uh, cult shouldn't be on the bridge. A woman has no business on the bridge. Except for number one, who doesn't really count. She has a computer mind. So Pike doesn't see her as a woman. Which, which I, Major Barrett had a great reaction to that. Yeah, too. yeah. It really and, hurts her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she she, uh, she gives him this look like, you know, I'm a woman, right? And he, he looks at her and says, yeah, but you're different. And then she just looked at him again like, what did you say to me? Yeah, later Atalosian outs her as uh, having fantasies about Pike, or a bit on the nose there, because it was so subtle, but, you know, notable in that scene. But for a show that is, or an episode that is old-fashioned in that way, in a madman kind of way, it's still very female-centric. Pike, except for a few scenes with boys that shows they have a relationship, it's mostly Pike and women. Even the aliens are played by women with male voices. It's very, very female-centric, and because number one is there and has a leadership role, which apparently 
the test audiences hated, especially the women in the audience, apparently, which is why, wow. she, yeah, which is why she's not in, she's not in the, the regular series. She wasn't ported over to the second pilot. Yeah, weird. But people reacted adversely to her. But that she's in a leadership role made the show feminist in the way that the, the series that we did get was perhaps more the women were in strange roles you know glorified nurses secretaries uh, switchboard operator <laughs> roles they weren't in strictly speaking in leadership roles except they were because they were all you know they all had good ranks you know at least lieutenants right. the show we did get was far less white yeah that was something i noticed about the cage the only non-white character is the transporter assistant and he doesn't get any lines yeah it's a very white cast Except it's perhaps more feminist as a setup. The, the one we got was as sexist as anything of the era, but had a diverse crew, and that became important to a lot of a lot of people who watched that and found saw themselves on TV in a in a role that was equal to those of white characters. And I think actually the the original series it may have had some sexism to it. But I think what Gene Romberry understood after the cage is don't be so overt about these things. You know, he worked in Sulu was in where no man's gone before kind of a secondary character where he eventually became a bridge officer. They added Uhura in, they added Chekhov eventually, you know, all these different looking sounding people just there, not necessarily high up, whereas Number one is kind of in your face. Hey, look, woman second in command. Deal with it. And that's probably why it didn't go over well in the 60s. Right. You know, it, it was still a very conservative time as far as gender roles. And audiences also had to, at the same time, accept the alien on the bridge, where, right. where aliens were usually a role reserved for villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Spock's got a satanic look, right? He's been called on, on it before, in, actually in the shows, the, the pointy ears and the pointy brows. So you're also accepting the alien as part of the cast and the female leader. So it's like a balance he had to, to strike, and we yeah. eventually did. So that's another difference that I, you know, I found. But the music's already there. It's already the Alexander Courage theme, the love theme, same music as we're used to. The you know there are some differences in design, the costumes. The what do you think of the costumes? The what are the differences in the, on the bridge? I'm so ingrained to look at it as well. This is the Enterprise ten years before, so it makes sense that it's not as advanced. Like the computer doesn't talk. For example, it prints out stuff. Actually, on a sheet of paper, it prints out stuff. And then each station has it that boom arm with the little view screen on it. And it's It makes sense for what they were trying to do uh, in that they're going for like a forbidden planet. Whereas, you know, Pike is essentially the Leslie Nielsen character. He is the stoic commander. This is, you know, I am in command. I You will do, what, do as I say kind of thing. And then the people around him are allowed to be a little more expressive. Like, I don't even think he gets a name, but the navigator. He's always excited about something. Uh, I think he's Tyler? I, I, I don't think he, they ever say his name. There's a credit for Lieutenant Tyler or something. Maybe that's it. He's the guy when they're talking to the illusions of the 
the scientists, well, you won't believe how fast you can get back now. Why, the time barrier's been broken. You know, he, he's so excited to tell them about these things. Whereas Pike is the, he's always in control. He's the, the stoic guy until he realizes what's going on with the Telosians and when he's, you know, he fills his mind with hate. So you get to see a little more Jeffrey Hunter pulling his acting chops out. But it's an interesting design look to it. Like, Pike has a TV in his room, which I thought was interesting. You know, he walks in and calls Boyce. He walks past a television to his bunk. Now, you could say it's a view screen, but just the, the placement of it, it's like, well, you're going to lay here and you're going to watch something. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting. It's almost, but not quite, the Enterprise we know, and it, it makes sense that they would try and save a bunch of stuff. But Pike has a bunch of books in his quarters on a shelf, whereas in Kirk, eventually, would say, "Why do you have books? A computer knows all this stuff." So it, it's an interesting dichotomy with what we got before. I, I mean, the uniforms. I actually like these uniforms because everyone's wearing pants. It makes more sense to me as a uniform. You don't have the, the women running around in miniskirts you know, it, for for essentially a ratings grab. That's all they were for. Even where know? No Man Has Gone Before has women in pants, it's like half and half. Yeah, it's, it's like it's on its way because even then, some of the technology like the communicators are exactly the same. And Spock still has the laser pistol from the cage in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right. So it's like they're transitioning to what it would become at that point. Uh, but you're filming a second pilot, you're going to save your money where you can. We already have this prop, use it. You know, we already have this bridge set up, use it. Don't redesign it just for the second pilot, because they probably were on a shoestring budget, so even though they were told, oh yeah, you can do this again, they weren't given the same amount of money. No, for sure. So you have to reuse some stuff. Okay, let's try the experiment. Ha! <laughs> What would Trek be like if the cage were its template instead of where no man has gone before? Obviously, there have been novels about the the Christopher Pike years, mm -hmm. and there have been uh, comics. IDW uh, fairly recently came out with a miniseries called Terrible Title, Star Trek Crew. <laughs> by John Byrne. By John Byrne, which kind of filled some of the de details, gave, telling stories from that era. Just looking at it, you can tell, yeah, it's the same universe, just few years before. Fashions have changed. The technology's better in the TOS universe. So some people have done it. There are stories out there that do exist as if it had gone to series, we might say. But for purposes of this, there was no second pilot. This went to series and lasted at least a season. <laughs> Depends how successful you think it would have been. Right. What do you think Star Trek would have looked like in that first year and then later? Well, I think you would have gotten a lot more stories like this, where you have the Enterprise dealing with an external threat. Uh, you got some of that in the the series that we got, but a lot more it was, as you said, it was McCoy and Spock talking to Kirk about, hey, this is what we should do with this thing that is either affecting the crew or uh, it's a, a situation that we see mirrored on our world. Whereas the cage, that crew, I can see doing more, as I mentioned before, more of a forbidden planet kind of thing. This is, this is the highly trained crew. We're going to go this planet and something's going to be attacking us and we have to defend ourselves against it. So that may have worked. It may not. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it's almost like Roddenberry at this point was in old sci-fi mode. 
mode. He was in humans are out in space and they have to deal with these things that are going to try and destroy them. You know, Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, all that kind of thing. Whereas I don't think they would explore the human condition as much. So it it may not have lasted very long because it would have just been another sci-fi show. Yeah, although pretty unique for its for its time still. Right, yeah. right. But I wonder also, I mean, it's we, we talk about an external threat, and I agree. But at the same time, there is an internal thing going on. It's really about getting catharsis for Pike. Pike is on the edge of quitting, and this brings him back to the fold. So it, it's really a, although there is an external threat, it's really about Pike and his getting on with his life, uh, because he has shown all these options. You know, what if you get, went back to Earth and got married? What if you became a slave trader for some reason? Hmm. And what if you were a star, uh, starship captain and had to fight big brutes on planets like you did two weeks ago? There was one line I, I really liked. I'm tired of deciding which mission is too risky and which isn't, and who's going on the landing party and who doesn't, and who lives, and who dies. Yes. Uh, the weight of that leadership, the weight of decision that's on him. That is exploring the human condition, or his condition at least, and at the end, we do have, it does become about uh, the fact that humanity is about freedom, it's about, we cannot live in cages, and Star Trek is the opposite of that. We've escaped the cage that is Earth, and we're going out there, and nothing's going to stop us. At the same time, telling Pike that he should not stop his quest, his missions, his his adventure by trapping himself in the pain of whatever happened two weeks ago, that failure. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I didn't notice until recently just how bad off the Enterprise is after that. Everybody, pretty much, is injured. The navigator, his right hand is bandaged. One of the, the geologists that comes up to the bridge, he's got a bandage on his neck. When they transport down to Talos, Spock is limping. So you can see where this would have gotten to him, where it was just, this was a massive thing that injured a bunch of people. So it, at that point, it, there were a good number of people that died, and that's why he's so so weighed down. But along those lines, character study-wise, I'm pretty sure we would gotten a lot of the same Vulcan exploration. For the simple fact that by exploring Spock, you throw a mirror up to humanity. I wonder what Spock would have because really the unemotionality was transported over from number one, who would still be in the show in this this idea, you know, became Spock. Spock is very much more emotional in this. He smiles, he you know, he has reactions that he would not have in the regular series. He would still have been an alien with an alien culture and they still would have done that for sure. But all the stuff where he's control in control of his emotions and which are some of the more powerful moments of the show, really, would have been gone because that would be number one's story. And perhaps she would have had these subplots. Maybe, yeah. It would still have a subplot like that. I don't know if it was if it would have been as powerful with number one because she is human as opposed to Spock. Because Spock, you were able to go to these extremes with it that you couldn't with a human because you, you do that with a human and it's just oh, well, you know, you're having a bad day or something along those lines. Yeah, unless they reveal something about her, why she has a computer mind, that she's not just a very proficient or a genius, that maybe she has 
you know, there's like a segment of humanity that's been trained in some way to make them that they are different. So she's a mentat. A mentat, like in Dune. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So watching it today, I was like, mm, what is what is her thing? Because it's a completely different dynamic. The whole thing where perhaps instead of Spock, McCoy, Kirk, what they might have been looking at or what would have evolved over the um, the seasons would have been a number one cult pike triangle, more of a romance thing where the pilot sets up two women that like him and that he ignores mm-hmm. or resents. They kind of tried to do that with Yeoman Rand, but there was like another woman, unless it's the Enterprise itself. Not a lot of success. I think that was a dead end for the actual series we got. Yeah, uh, well, the the main problem with Yeoman Rand was Grace Lee Whitney's drug problem, essentially. Yeah. And she, she had to leave the series early to the point where they already had scripts ready. In fact, after she leaves, you, you want, look at these other episodes like uh, Dagger the Mind, for example. There's this woman scientist there that, you know, oh, she has this relationship with the captain. Well, that was supposed to be Rand. So I think that it dead-ended on the original series because of the actress, not because of the plot line. And maybe that's what made Kirk such a Lothario. <laughs> Actually, actually, I think I believe it was Mission Log that uh, put this forth. If you watch the episodes in order, Kirk, like especially with Rand, he's resisting all these temptations. He's like, no, 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 you're my yeoman. I don't want to get involved. All this until City on the Edge of Forever, where he loses the love of his life. And after that, he's like, well, screw it. You know, I I can never get that back. Oh, you. Green chick, come here. They're all disposable after that. Exactly. I mean, no one was going to be Edith Keeler ever again. That's a good theory. For Pike, Pike feels so restrained emotionally that probably the same idea where he would have resisted Yeoman Colt the same kind of way. I mean, you can sort of see where the same storylines, the same story Bible did exist and then morphed because the actors were different, because the performances were different, because put different backgrounds for characters and it starts to change their stories. I mean, the, the main thing with Pike is I don't think you would have a lot of romance with him. He would be more of, I want to say more like Picard in that he w- he was there to do a job. Whereas Kirk, his passion was being a starship commander. He was almost literally in love with the Enterprise. Pike, willing to walk away from it, even just to think about walking away from it. This is his career. It's not his life. So I think he would look at as, oh, this is my job. Uh, so the, the romance would have to come yeah. from an- another character if it came from anywhere. And I, I'm not exactly sure who the character would be. It, it could be Spock. I mean, you, you could have Spock in the Riker role for all we know. <laughs> yeah, and he did become a sex symbol. Let's say we play the same games that Where No One Has Gone Before did, because where no one has gone before went to series but they did make some changes they changed the overall you know uniforms but most notably they changed one character yeah they swapped out dr piper dr piper became dr mccoy and the show was much better for it now if you had that same liberty and say well the cage goes to series but we're going to change one character and instead we're going to put well let's say a character from the original series who would you switch and i guess you'd have to put scotty in there i i would think so because there's 
there's really no engineer in the cage. There's Spock as the scientist. There's Boyce as the the doctor. Number one is the first officer and helmsman. I mean, it would it would either be Ad Scotty or Ad Uhura because Scotty at least fills a role. Uhura, while she was great for civil rights and the women's movement and everything, she was, as you said, essentially a glorified switchboard operator. Whereas Scotty was the problem solver. He was he was the guy below decks getting things to run. And you didn't have that in the cage. And Boyce can be McCoy. I think he's got the same template. They're almost the same character. They're this country doctor that's willing to give you a drink to get you to talk. And he's Boyce and McCoy are both willing to tell the captain, you're being an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you should be doing. So I think they're essentially the same character, although I don't think... I mean, Boyce is more the stereotypical country doctor, where whereas McCoy was... He wanted to be a country doctor, but he was still part of the military, and he was able to fulfill that role. He was able to pick up a phaser when he needed to, or, you know, kick some butt when he needed to, or, you know, stare down Khan, which was, you know, a feat in itself. I'm, I can't see Boyce telling Khan to cut his jugular, you know? Overall, the, the characters were all slightly better, you know, had more personality, had more quirks. Uh, and had more potential for humor. I think the the cage is fairly humorless uh, compared to just the overall vibe of the original series. Yeah, or even where No Man Has Gone Before, you have Mitchell joking around with Kirk. Even you know he's in a hospital bed and everything, yeah. but he's, there's still these are old friends taking the Mickey out of each other. The lab assistant so, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so you had a little bit more humor there because you were allowed to, you're allowed with, with Shatner to open up a little more. I, I'm almost wondering if the cage was Roddenberry trying too hard to stick to the norms, too hard to stick to the science fiction conventions and I'm going to come back to it again, like in Forbidden Planet, which essentially that's what this is. This is Forbidden Planet, except instead of a scientist's id coming to life and attacking things, it's aliens using their mental powers. But it's the same thing where the captain's at the center of it and there's, you know, he's fighting to save this be the beautiful woman and all these different things are, are happening around him. Yeah, the Adam and Eve element, which goes right. back way back to the Tempest, you know. Kind of thing. Yeah, so it, it's almost like Rodberry's trying to do Star Trek on the Forbidden Planet template, and they said, no, we don't want that. And then he was able to do more of what he really wanted to. Because if you watch any of the, the things that he, any of the scripts that he wrote for television before that, there's more personality in those. Uh, I can't remember what show we watched recently, because end of last year, we got rid of satellite. So we don't have satellite, we don't have cable, we have an antenna, and then we have Hulu and Netflix and things like that. So on Netflix, we've been watching Adam-12, The Big Valley, Dragnet, Bonanza, all, all these old-time television shows. One of those had a script by Gene Roddenberry in it. And it, the characters had more personality. There was a little more joking going around. So I'm wondering if he was nervous. My first series, I have to tighten it up. I have to be serious. And then they said, no, it's too serious. And they said, oh, okay, I can do what I want. They were probably concentrating on to show how this would work and transporters to avoid a lot of the ship, you know, a lot of the effects problems. Yeah. 
but going to series, perhaps it might have been a little lighter. Yeah, I mean, he even with it, these characters. It, yeah, even with these characters, they probably would have switched things up a little bit. Maybe Pike now, after his experience here, has re-energized and he'll loosen up a little bit. You know, now that number one has been outed as having fantasies about the captain, maybe they'll do a Picard Crusher thing with them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Something we along can, those lines. We can sort of see some of these ideas get developed in, in later series. Maybe people will watch this cage and said, oh, that, this is where I would have gone with it. And since I'm running TNG or DS9 or whatever, I can actually do this now with my characters. So there, there's something there. There's something in it, for sure. Would it have been successful? You were saying no earlier, but after this discussion. It probably would have been maybe two seasons. I don't think it would have made the three. I don't think it would have had quite the audience grab at, because Jeffrey Hunter is terrific. He's a wonderful actor, but Shatner just had, like you said, he had that twinkle in his eye. He had that personality that just blasted through the television. So I don't think that would have had quite the audience appeal, but it most likely would have been successful. Maybe not as successful as the original series. And I don't know if it would have gone to movies, but it would have been a successful, moderately successful sci-fi show. But maybe not get saved by fans for a third season. But Roddenberry might still have championed it and brought old reels to conventions and then syndication. Could have happened, but yeah. two seasons isn't a lot to syndicate. No, and yeah. he, he might have... He might have gotten in with with the college crowd, like when it is speaking tours and stuff, and maybe that would have started an underground movement. And maybe then we actually get Star Trek Phase 2 yeah. instead of Star Trek the Motion Picture. Roddenberry was still the engine, the motivator behind recreating it, pushing it again into the forefront. He's the reason it got syndicated. He's the reason it went to movies. He's the reason that we got TNG. He was still involved. So if this was his baby and he still wanted, could have pushed for it again with different crews, different ships uh, and it might still have become something as big as it is now could have happened there's always that possibility and i think it would have been a fairly good, decent possibility to do it yeah did you uh in fact watch it with your young daughter this one did the yeah. cage yes i did we actually i didn't give her a choice because we put on while we were eating dinner <laughs> and so, so she's the new audience she's the she's the kid from 1966 who would have seen this let's say i mean she's she's seen other things <laughs> right since. but what was her evaluation how did she enjoy it or not she actually enjoyed it she she was asking questions through it uh she was asking about the the vein on the head of Telosians. is mm. that a bad thing or is that all right uh she was you know she asked about at the very end of the episode where Colt asked, you know, who would have been Eve? She looked at me and said, Eve. I said, yeah, as in Adam and Eve, that's what they were trying to do. And so she she was engaged in the story. She enjoyed it. She enjoyed watching it. It wasn't so cerebral that an eight-year-old got turned off, which is always a good thing. It was pitched older, but a bright kid can, can easily follow. I think so, yeah. And, and she is a uh, outside the norm. She is a fairly bright child, so uh, it may not have worked for the average eight-year-old, but, and yes, I'm talking her up because I'm her dad, but also oh. because it's true. <laughs> sure, sure it is. But she's also a, a 21st century child, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is a kid who's going to third grade, and she's already two years of computers yeah in school so yeah she she's a little ahead of where my mom was in the same time period and using equipment that seems ahead of what 
<laughs> happens in the Star Trek future. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, all that's left is to say our goodbyes and our thanks. First of all, thanks for participating on very short notice, creating this show with me, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to remember, you wanted to talk about Star Trek, and I was available. So that basically sealed the deal right that's there. All, that's always needed. Yeah, where can people find you uh, on the internets? Well, you can find me in two places, really. Uh Every Thursday, I do a blog post at thehammerstrikes.com, and that's scattershot of geeky topics. Uh, last week was on my top 10 superhero movies. Uh, this week is going to be on timers in sporting events. Okay. So it, it's all over the place. <laughs> but that's a weekly thing. Every Thursday I post something. Uh, you can also find me on twotruefreaks.com, and I host several shows over there. The Hammer Podcast, which is The Hammer Strikes just in audio form. Uh, Anime Freaks with my good friend Dr. Bill Robinson, where we are uh, should be hearing an episode soon about the anime movie Akira. Cool. I also am a co-host on The Quantum Cast with my good buddy Adam Wirth. And that's us talking about the best of the D-list Marvel superheroes, Quasar. <laughs> yeah, Quasar. Hey. <laughs> You've heard of him. Oh, he had his own series. He had his own series for 60 issues, which is better than some people. <laughs> and a little absurd. So uh, thank you again, Gene. Thank you very much, Cisco. I, I was really honored that you had me on as your first guest, and it was a really fun conversation. I hope we can do it again soon. I think we might. I think there will be plenty of repeat offenders on this thing. You won't have any lack of uh, willing participants, I can tell you that. Just from the Fire and Water Network, you've got a bunch of people. Yeah, there's a, there's a lineup already, and I'm very grateful. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you care to leave a comment, that would be much appreciated. You can do so on the fireandwaterpodcasts.com website, or if you prefer, the Facebook page of the Fire and Water Network. And if you're going to use Twitter, please use the hashtag FWPodcasts. The show will probably be monthly, and I've got a lot of guests and cool topics lined up. I hope you'll come back for more. Until then, go boldly. Thanks for real, Gene. I mean, because I was fake on the podcast. Super fake. <laughs> yeah, Super yeah, fake. Hey, that, that's your character, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cisco is a bastard. Laddie, don't you think you should rephrase that?